We will project the scripture, but if you have your Bible and you want to, turn to Mark chapter 13. So we've been walking through the book of Mark, and a little context reminders. Uh, Mark is the author. Peter, his friend, was the eyewitness of all these accounts, and so you have Peter who was with Jesus throughout all this and was basically telling stories with Mark. Mark was a disciple at the time as well. Mark's the one penning these things down. Uh, It seems like Mark's intent, it's a fast-paced, hard-hitting gospel. Originally, it starts out with Jesus making all these claims of who he is, claiming to be the Messiah. And then we start to see some of the actions that Jesus is taking uh, that seem very much in line with Messiah-ish power. And so, so far, uh, he's acted with power and authority in physical healings, uh, authority over natural things, executed spiritual authority over the demonic disorder of the day. But in uh, the first half of the book, basically, we observe these things. And then chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, Jesus starts to proclaim that he's going to suffer, die, and resurrect. So three times in those chapters, very direct, one time pretty implied. And so now we've, we've moved into the part of the book of Mark that he's very much going toe-to-toe with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and challenging uh, the perception of what religion is, as well as challenging his disciples' idea of what the Messiah came to establish and came to do. And so he's turning a lot of the religious order on its head. He's saying things like, uh, if you want to become greatest, you must become a servant of all, uh, and and whatnot. And so that's the scene that we get on. Uh, Pat Karn spoke of the first 13 verses here. Uh, in chapter 13 last week and he did a great job like Pat usually does in terms of taking a piece of scripture and and showing us how it applies to our life Uh, so we are going to kind of work through the whole whole chapter but we won't spend as much time on those first 13 chapters and I'm pretty confident that we won't have a whole lot of crossover um, as far as Pat Pat's message and mine Uh, so today we are going to eh, not verse by verse but go through each chunk of scripture and it's it's a it's a chapter that can be a little bit confusing on the surface when you first read it. There's some prophecy in here, and it's hard to kind of make sense of who Jesus is talking to. Uh, is this for us? Is this for his disciples 2,000 years ago? And so, really, I want you to kind of hike your sleeves up and, and, and work through this with me. And we'll see if we can't uh, come away from here with a little bit better understanding of what this is. In my life, I've read some of these, I've been taught some of these uh, passages, and I think I've applied them, or at least understood them, uh, in, a little, in a way that they're probably not meant to be understood. And so, again, my desire is to, to provide a little bit of clarity for myself and hopefully you. All right, so verse 1. Jesus, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be one stone left upon another that won't be thrown down. So this is what we call a short-term prophecy. We're going to talk about the difference between a short-term prophecy and a long-term prophecy. Short-term meaning it's likely to happen very soon after this conversation. Again, this conversation took place with Jesus, his disciples in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. And as we know, looking back in history, this temple that he's talking about, these stones, was uh, completely annihilated by the Romans in 70 AD. So about 40 years after this conversation took place, Rome comes in and wipes out Jerusalem and just destroys the temple. One of the, the, I guess, academic practices that we can get into when we're reading scripture is it's important to follow the pronouns. So as we're looking through Mark chapter 13, 
walk with me and recognize if Jesus says you, uh, as in talking to his disciples, there may be indication that that's a short-term prophecy. His audience are his disciples. The time he's talking about was 2,000 years ago. The location is Jerusalem. Other times you'll hear him use pronouns like they, and that might be talking about something in the future. It's not always cut and dry, but it gives us some hints on where Jesus is going here and what kind of prophetic language he's using, so what we can expect. Is this of us? Is this from us? Is this for them? Is this for both parties? And so we're going to follow the pronouns a little bit. Uh, All right, verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of all these things that are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So you get a real interesting dynamic in this conversation where the disciples ask, Tell us when. They're looking for time references. And what's Jesus do? He kind of ignores that right now. And he immediately goes to a a warning and a command and a challenge where they say when, and he says, parks that for a second and says, there's going to be a lot of false prophets that come. There's going to be a lot of people that come and try to lead you astray. Your job is to stay the course. So immediately, Jesus directs their focus onto their responsibility. And that's a theme that you'll see throughout this whole time. Uh, Josephus is a Jewish historian uh, and one of the most credible, one of the people that we use the most when we look at the Bible and then we try to grab something that's extra biblical or secular uh, to compare history with what Scripture says. And Josephus is an individual that we use often. Probably the, uh, the, the most information that we have about the history of Jerusalem uh, was written by this man. And he tells us that soon after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, there were many false prophets that sprang up in the Jerusalem area. Some of them were really short-lived. Some of them were a little bit more, but all of them kind of died out. Either they were killed or various things happened. So we can consider this to be a pretty short-term prophecy as well. Verse 7. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But these are yet the beginning of birth pains. So what I think is happening here is is Jesus is saying, Look, tragedies in life have always been since the fall and there will always be. There's been unrest and war. There's been earthquakes. There's been famines. And so that's part of just normal life on earth. But he is saying, like, like pregnancy leading up to birth, these things will escalate in intensity. These, these things will become more regular. So he's saying these things have happened, but yet there's going to be a time where they will, you'll be hearing more and more and more. But he's saying, don't, don't panic yet. If you have a contraction, you don't have to run to the hospital right away, right? He's saying, you got to wait. These things got to get closer together. These things got to increase in pain. And then you'll know time's coming near. Verse 9, he says, But be on guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you, remember the pronouns, you will be beaten in synagogues, and you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. So all of a sudden he turns 
the focus from this catastrophic earthquake, nation against nation, and he says, you, disciples, are getting ready to endure some intense persecution. It's going to get ugly for you. And as he does that, he leaves them with hope, which is another theme that we see that I love in this piece of scripture. Each time he, give, he gives them a hard truth and a tough message of what they're about to endure, he says, but yet there's purpose to this. There's a reason there's good that's going to come from this. Before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. In other words, he's saying you're going to be persecuted, but the gospel is going to carry the day. The gospel is going to continue to be proclaimed. And I want you to see these moments as opportunities to proclaim Christ's resurrection to governors and councils and kings. People that perhaps you haven't had the opportunity. So again, he's focusing, he's telling them the truth, some hard truth, but he's saying, but here's the plan and here's the work I have for you. Proclaim Jesus among these people. The gospel will continue. Verse 10, And the gospel first must be preached and proclaimed to all nations. So again, he's saying your duty, your call, your opportunity is to proclaim this message. And then we've seen a little bit more where he's beginning to talk about salvation, um, the good news that is not just isolated for very specific people at very specific time. Again, oftentimes, Old Testament, you see the covenant that God makes with Israel, and it says, I will be your God, you will be my people. But also in the Old Testament, you get these little glimmers and glimpses of uh, expansion of that. And Jesus is beginning to put flesh and blood and talk more and more about the expansion. Instead of just for the Jews, he's starting to open this up to all nations. If you'll remember just chapters earlier when Christ... Hosanna, he rides in as Messiah, and he enters the, the temple, and he cleanses the temple. Remember that? Where people are turning the outer court very, very likely into uh, a place of money exchange, and a place where they're selling sacrifices, some of taking advantage of people. Well, likely that outer court, that's where the women could be. That's where the Gentiles, or anyone who's not a Jew, could be. And then as you work its way further, the the people permissible to enter gets uh, isolated more to the Jews, just men, than to priests. Holy of Holies, just the, the chief priests. And so he walks into this place that is kind of the commons for everyone, and this is where he says, uh, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. So he's starting to, once again, change kind of the, the expectation of the day, and he's beginning to declare, yes, I'm the Messiah, and these promises that I'm giving and this kingdom that I'm establishing is going to be for all people who put their faith in Christ Jesus. So whether you're a woman or a man, whether you're black or you're white, regardless of what nationality, what tongue, where you come from, he's saying anyone who puts their faith in the Messiah has opportunity to enter into the holy place, enter into the holy of holies. And so again, there's still another step back. What is this about? What is he doing? Verse 11. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand of what you are to say, 
But say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. So again, using the pronouns, he's speaking directly to the disciples. So I think we need to recognize the context of the situation. But also, just because he's speaking to the disciples at this time doesn't mean there's not carryover for us, right? And this language is language that we're familiar with as New Testament Christians, uh, as evangel evangelical free Christians, as rim rockers, where now Jesus is grabbing the Holy Spirit and bringing him involved and saying, here's the deal, the Holy Spirit is with you and he wants to live through you. In fact, he's going to be so personal that he's going to give you the words to say when you do stand before these people on trial. This is language we're familiar with. Later, he pulls this out more and more and more when he says the Holy Spirit isn't just among you, but the Holy Spirit will be in you. And these people are used to the Holy Spirit, where it has always been, he has always been active. But Old Testament, oftentimes you'd see the Holy Spirit descend upon someone for a specific task at a specific time, whether it be slaying dragons, giants, Goliath, whether it be composing song, uh, just various things that the Holy Spirit would come upon someone, empower them to do divine, and then would, would leave, in a sense, and still working. But now, again, Jesus is making a transfer. He's saying there's going to be more than that. In fact, it's going to be almost every day common that he's going to be able to just speak using your voice. You're beginning to see a theme here, right, where persecution is coming, but within this persecution... There is good promised. Within this persecution, there is hope. Verse 12. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and father to child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Here's the hope line. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Essentially, I think he's describing the fact that this is going to get bad. This is going to get ugly. But in this, here's the hope. I had the opportunity this last week to speak to all the uh, basketball players, high school basketball players, women and men, uh, for the state tournament. And so we were talking about winning and this idea they're getting ready to enter into intense competition. And so a common theme is uh, the desire and the, the purpose to win. And I started to realize, I think that's a little bit what Jesus is doing here is he's trying to ensure victory. He's trying to instill in them this idea that you can know and you can be sure that you are going to win. And if you think about those times in your life where all of a sudden you're in a moment and you realize either it's going to be okay, but more than that, I'm going to win, that's a great feeling. Whether you're preparing for a test all week and all of a sudden you get the test and you glance over it and it's maybe a short 10 question and you just kind of glance through it and all of a sudden it dawns on you, I know all of this. This is going to be a cakewalk. Feels good. Your anxiety just goes out the door, right? But those moments in competition in athletics where all of a sudden momentum switches and changes and in that moment you know you have an opportunity to take the opponent's heart. Sorry, that's my coach coming out. Okay. We get a little dramatic. It's more than momentum. You get this opportunity to literally take the game. And at that moment, you know it's over. There's more time on the clock or there's more innings to play. But at that moment, you know it's over. 
Tom and Terry aren't here, but I can tell a quick story. When I was in high school, we used to, uh, we used to enjoy boxing. So we had a bunch of boxing gloves, and we'd do it in their basement every once in a while. They knew about this one. Um, but generally, it was, it was us friends. We knew each other, and so it was fun to kind of, you know, go back and forth. And if you pop somebody good, it was like, whoa, you okay? Yeah, we're all right. And then you keep going. Well, one night we're doing this, and next thing you know, a couple more people enter in, a couple more people enter in, a couple more people enter in, and pretty soon we're in the basement. It is just packed. And this group of guys comes in that we knew, we went to school with them, but we weren't necessarily friends with. And these guys were, were kind of known for being in trouble. And so all of a sudden, the, the intensity of the room just kind of raised a little bit. Where, what's going to happen now? And a couple of these guys had just been, you know, we knew they'd been arrested for getting in fights and for beating people up. And so, shoot, we just, you know, we just got done with Sunday school and we're boxing. I mean, you know, what's the deal? And this one guy comes in and he, he goes as far as he takes off his shirt and he starts peacocking around. And uh, regardless of how I felt about him before then, now I really didn't like him. And so he's looking for somebody to, to box, and I just got done with like three different matches, and so I'm sitting on the couch a little bit tired, and he kind of calls me out a little bit, and I give him one of these, yeah, give me a minute. And I had, you know, I had a little nerves going. I was like, whew, this is going to get a little bit interesting. And I wanted to catch my breath because I want to be at the top of my game here. I knew it, before the night was over it's going to happen. God didn't give me that back down button. It's just not in there. But... But I knew, okay, okay. But, you know, the anxiety was there. And then uh, he and a good friend of mine, a rancher friend of mine, went, started boxing. Uh, there's a hole in Terry's wall, not anymore, uh, from this. But it turns into just this all-out brawl with gloves on. And a minute into this thing, I'm watching how messy and ugly and sloppy and clumsy this whole deal is. And it was at that moment that I had that feeling, oh, Yeah. This is going to be fun. And so all of a sudden, all my anxiety totally disappeared. Where the victory, I knew what was, I was looking at, and it was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win. By the end of the night, I was able to say, now put your shirt back on. <laughs> but it's the difference between enduring some sort of intense situation in your life, some sort of trial, something that's uncomfortable, and being promised or recognizing that victory can and will be yours. This is the language that Scripture uses in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are eternal, or the things that are seen are transient, and the things that are unseen are are eternal. I think this is what Jesus is doing to his disciples. He's saying, you've got to buckle up. Things are going to get a little sketchy, a little uncomfortable, a little hard. But everything that's difficult and all trials are temporary, all of them. And those who are in Christ Jesus, all good is eternal. And so he's equipping his disciples with hope. Boomer talked earlier about inviting people to our Easter service to be introduced to hope. And I think this is what Jesus is doing here. Gets a little bit interesting, chapter, or verse 14, the abomination of desolation, right? I'm going to leave you to figure out what that, what that is. But we'll walk through it here. But when you, 
pronoun. See the abomination of desolation standing where ought not to be. Parentheses, let the reader understand. Don't ask me, ask Pat, ask Bill, ask somebody else. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house or take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back for his cloak. And alas for the women who are pregnant and those who are nursing for infants in those days. Pray that it doesn't happen in the winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation that has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Now I won't hang my hat or pound too hard on this, but I think this is a short-term prophecy spoken to these people in Jerusalem. And I think what Jesus is saying, there's probably some carryover. It's, it very, very possibly could be both. But some of this anyway, I think what Jesus is saying is Jerusalem has been under attack before. The Chaldeans, the Babylonians, Jerusalem has been destroyed at times before. But what's about to happen is going to get real bad. Like this is going to be the worst in Jerusalem's history when the Romans come and invade. And again, they're going to wipe out not just the temple, but they're going to burn the city to the ground. And they're going to kill man, child, elder, baby, so I think what he's saying is, when that happens, you think of survival. If you're in the field, don't go back. Basically, you run to the hills of Judea. I think his point is, things are going to get really bad, and at that point, do what you can to save yourself. Verse 20, And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. Now I think he's citing and talking about, again, Old Testament, God makes a covenant with the people of Israel, says, I will be your God, you will be my people. And throughout Isaiah, throughout uh, many different books of the Old Testament, he talks about saving a remnant. Earlier on, it was 3,000 years ago, it was saving, 4,000 years ago, saving a remnant for my servant David. After the time of David, saving a remnant for the Messiah, the Savior. So, though God has, Christ has ushered in the opening up of salvation and the good news to all people, God still has a place for his people Israel. And so here I think Jesus is saying things are going to get bad, a lot of Jews are going to die, but I'm going to save some. So I'm going to cut the time short. I'm going I'm to save a remnant of my people to fulfill the covenant that I have promised with them throughout all time. Verse 21, And then if someone says to you, Look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false prophets and false Christs will arise and perform signs and wonders and lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you these things beforehand. Now what I think Jesus is saying here is that these false prophets that come, they're going to be very, very persuasive. And they're going to come at a time where you are desperate. You think about the way that Satan attacks if we are tired, if we're hungry, if we're isolated, if we have hardship, we're extra vulnerable to things, right? Because we're starting to reach for stuff because we want some, some reprieve. And so I think God, Christ is warning these people, during this time, you're going to be extra vulnerable. And so these people will be very, very persuasive in how they teach. But I think this language when he says, if possible, lead the elect astray, in my mind, he's saying, it's not possible because they are grabbed and held onto by the grace of God through an unconditional covenant that is relying upon God. And he's just simply making a point that they're going to be good. So if it were possible, he could even lead Jesus straight, but it's not. Then he says in verse 23, But be on guard, for I have told you these things beforehand. 
And once again, to me, he's saying, you might not know all the details of the plan, but you need to know that there is a plan. And when we or his disciples know there is a plan and there is a purpose for everything that takes place in your life, your circumstance today, God knows about. And God does not waste time. And the reality of him being sovereign over that and him using that is sometimes what allows us to stay the course. That in and of itself instills deep hope within us and allows us to continue to go forward and continue to go forward regardless of the circumstance and hanging on to the promise this will accomplish the work of God and his promises are sure. It's uncomfortable being in the potter's hands at times, but his promises are sure. And he's grabbing his disciples and he's saying, you continue to stay the course. This is captured in John 16, 33, a verse we're familiar with. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. We're getting ready to embark on the Easter season. In Isaiah, there's prediction that I want to read to you. 25, 8 and 9. Prediction of victory, prediction of what's going to happen. It says, And he, the Messiah, he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth. And in Corinthians, we get talk of the fulfillment of that. After the death and after Christ comes bursting forth on Easter from the grave and conquers sin and death. It's spoken about in Corinthians 15, verse 26. It says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Verse 54 and 55, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. As we embark on Easter, I believe this is Jesus' declaration of this victory. On the cross, when he cries out, it is finished. He's declaring, the other translation says paid for. He's declaring the, what he came to accomplish is in process. And when he burst forth through the grave and resurrected from the dead, Romans says that he brought us who are in Christ with him. This is Jesus standing like this for all time. And he grabs you and he brings you with him. Now the fulfillment of that is not yet. Spiritually, he's purchased that. Spiritually, positionally, before the all dominions and all authorities, if you are in Christ, that is the stance of your soul. But circumstantially, and on this earth, we know there's different things going on. And so he shows us, he points us forward to when the fulfillment of all that will culminate and come together. Verse 24. But in those days after tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. 
And then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. So now all of a sudden Jesus is giving his disciples as well as us, I think this is long-term prophecy, an idea of what the contractions are leading to. An idea of what will take place when Christ does come again. We call this oftentimes the second coming or the rapture. Matthew 24, I think sometimes the best thing to interpret one piece of scripture is using another piece of scripture. Matthew 24, he says, And as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. In other words, you're not going to miss this. This is going to be all over the place, and it's going to be very sudden. But immediately after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great glory. And he'll send forth his angels in great trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds from one sky to another. So in both Matthew and Mark, you get real similar language. And so we can start to discern a little bit of what this may look like. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 gives us more. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, and with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, the dead will rise first. So he's declaring, this is going to happen. I am going to come again. This is an idea of what it's going to look like. You're not going to miss it. He goes on to the lesson of the fig tree. From the fig tree, learn this lesson. We'll get back to the second coming. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer's near. When you see these things taking place, you know that he, Christ, second coming, is near. In fact, at the very gate. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now here I believe Jesus is possibly combining short and long term. I think he's saying part of this is for you, Jews in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, but he's also projecting and going back to this second coming, this idea of Christ coming from the clouds from heaven. When he says this generation, that seems to imply the specific people he's talking to short term, right? And when he says all these things, perhaps he's saying to them, the Jewish nation is going to be at war. There's going to be distraction from Christ and false prophets, false Christ's. Rome is going to grow in its displeasure towards Jerusalem. And there's going to be a deep, uh, a heightened increase of persecution for the, you Christians. And I think all these things, he's saying, when these things start to take place, that's contractions getting closer. That's when the destruction's coming. So again, I think in my mind, a little bit of that is short-term prophecy. But then he jumps to saying, when the moon, when the sun, when the skies, when all this stuff begins shaking, perhaps that's long-term prophecy. Perhaps that's when he's saying, those are signs that Christ is at the very gate, that he is near, that he is coming, and in fact, that is how he's to come. Now he finally gets around to answering a little bit more of their question as far as the when. Verse 32. But concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. Continue to hear that, don't we? For you do not know when he will come. He gives a quick parable. It is like a man going on a journey, puts his servants in charge, 
He keeps people at the door and he says, stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you don't know when the master of the house will come. Now I think he's talking about the when of the second coming. Saying, yes, Christ will come. And I want you to live as if he's coming any minute. Do you know that? No. His, his apostles here didn't know if this was going to take place within that 40 years. If it was going to be 100 years. It's been 2,000 years. We don't know if it's coming tomorrow, if it's 40 years from now, if it's 2,000 years. But he tells them and he tells us, I want you to focus on what I've asked you to do. I want you to live as if it were coming tomorrow. I want you to preach today as if I was coming tomorrow. It changes the way that you live your life. It changes how you see people and how you see things and how you see circumstances and how you see trials, doesn't it? You hold things a little more loosely. You hold people a little closer. Trials, you deal with them. Matthew 24 gives us similar language, but it gives more examples. It says, like in the days of Noah, when there was a flood, people were living normal lives. It says two men are in a field, one's taken, one's left. Two women are grinding at the mill. Basically, I think Matthew pulls out a little bit more where this is coming suddenly, and you're not real sure when. Thessalonians and Mark say that when this day comes, the day of the Lord, destruction will come upon them suddenly, and then the other, it says, the world will be in mourning. So in my mind, I think what Jesus is saying is when Christ first came as a lamb to be sacrificed, and that shocked everybody, and they still weren't sure what happened until he was hanging on the cross. He says, a time will come where Christ will come as the lion. And when that comes, it is going to be a terrible, horrific day for those who don't know the lion. When the playwright steps onto the stage, the play is over and the curtains close. And he's saying that day is coming and it's going to be terrible and it's going to be fearful and the world will mourn unless you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, he says, all good will last forever and though I may be trembling on that day my heart will be rejoicing because I know practice is over the game has begun I think he's speaking to them and he's speaking to us be ready and live as though it could be any moment See, being in Christ, there's a lot of times, specifically now in my life, there's a lot of times I pray for his return and I long for heaven and I long for eternity. And I can't wait for that to happen. But every once in a while, God says, just because you're in the ark, don't be so quick to have that door shut because there's other people outside of there. And he gives me different names. And in some senses, I totally believe God is sovereign and in control of all salvation of all people. So it doesn't cause me a lot of anxiety, but he, gives, he, he grabs my face and he says, guess what you're called to do? You're called to be an expression of Jesus. And so don't worry so much about the when. 
I want you to be about my father's business. In love and executed in his power and the Holy Spirit, he says, Nick, you do what I've asked you to do. And part of that is proclaiming me among the nations. See, I believe every single one of us has a work to do. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you are in the ark, you have a work to do. And in this, God is saying to his disciples, and he's saying to you, what's the work that God is asking you to do today? Who are the people that he's asking you to love? How is he asking you to do that? Is it proclaiming and preaching? Is it loving and smiling? Is it being accepting? I don't know. I don't know what the fruit looks like. But like his disciples, he says to you, you have a purpose And that purpose is expressing me through the power of the Holy Spirit today. Because I might come tomorrow. And so we're called to live like that. And again, when that happens, every single person feels and experiences purpose. And in one sense, you taste the victory. Those are the moments where you know Regardless of what's walking around me, regardless of what's happening, I win. And when I know that that has been purchased and bought for me by the grace and the blood of Jesus, it produces an incredible humility and thankfulness. And when I know it's been sealed and held by a sovereign God who doesn't change, it produces an incredible confidence and fearlessness that we as Christians can walk in every single day. When you know victory has been purchased for you, it changes everything about you. Jesus Christ is coming. We are called to be ready, and we're called to be steadfast and immovable. Let's pray as Lily comes up.